The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Uh, It's a little bit the difference between someone who's saying, okay, well, now it's time to give another proof of messianic power. You know, it's been a while. So, you know, something just is thrown out in isolation from everything else that Jesus is, or is it, is it part of who he is? You see, this is just instinctive. This is what he does. So, in effect, it's an invitation to see Jesus' ministry as an, as an integral whole, uh, along with, of course, devoting attention to these incidents of the full-blown miracles that are meant to uh, draw our attention. All right, point four is a suggested technical definition. A miracle story, remember we had a definition of a parable? Well, this is imitating it. A miracle story is a religious persuasive narrative. I'm just using this stuff from the definition of parable. Now, this is not the way most people would start, maybe. But we need to realize it isn't just a record of what happened. As given by the gospel writers, it is meant to have persuasive impact. It is meant to make a religious point rather than narrowly to entertain people or to fascinate them. You know, they have these TV programs of 10 unsolved mysteries and, you know, just things that are fascinating, but it's not, there's no religious uh, point made. So it's a religious persuasive narrative describing a miracle, i.e., an extraordinary visible act of God's power, arousing awe and wonder in man and conveying special revelation. Now, that's Frame's definition from years ago, but it's pretty good, I think. An extraordinary visible act of God's power. So we distinguish these, you see, from the verbal teaching of Jesus. And it's extraordinary. Now, that can be a matter of degree, perhaps, but, of course, that's what makes these things stand out, that many of them are exceedingly extraordinary. Arousing awe and wonder in men, and the subjective element, I think, is, again, significant, that they're meant to have a function in drawing man's attention to the kingdom and to uh, Jesus himself. All right, point Five. Number five, the question of elaboration or simplicity. Point A, miracle stories may have a second level of meaning. They may, some of them. But such a second level does not appear to be as constitutive for their existence as in the case of parables. And Jules asked the question before, and now we're coming to it, whether these things are parallel and here's a way, uh, uh, an area where I don't think they're strictly parallel. Why not? Because a miracle story, you can tell the story, and the main significance may be this is simply just what Jesus did, and this shows, you know, that God was with him and so on. Whereas the parables, why do you tell a story at all unless it's pointing to some second meaning, right? So here's the story of a hundred sheep and one is lost. What's the point? Okay, so this happens. 
right? So you're, you, you see, it doesn't draw attention to itself in the same way a miracle does. So you're looking for a second meaning because that would be the reason, you know, otherwise why are you telling a story at all? So the miracle stories may have a second level of meaning. This was point A. But it but it's, isn't as constitutive. And B, note the phrase in the definition I gave you, conveying special revelation. Miracles are not brute facts. They are not simply surds, that is, irrational things. Well, strange things happen, right? <laughs> Without any revelatory significance. Hence, some degree of significance belongs to them. And this leads us to raise the question whether we are invited to some degree to use metaphorical analogies, that is an allegorical approach, or synecdochal analogies, that is an example of a broader case. I say some degree of this is to be expected if miracles are conveying special revelation. But even if it is so, it is not as emphasized as with a parable. So there's more caution needed, I think, in looking for a second level. The parables obviously invite it. And it's to some extent there's going to be things with miracle stories because they're conveying special revelation. But the issue is what? All right. And C, with a parable, and this is the point I think I already made, but worth repeating. With a parable, the story itself, on the normal level of meaning, shepherds and sheep, has, does not have an independent significance. Why not? Because it's typically a fiction. It's an invented story. And a fictional story, even today, the uninspired fictional stories people tell, you look for some extra significance. Hence, for a parable, all the weight is put on the second level. Well, practically, right? Because I've talked about organic unity uh, between the two and Jesus as a mediator of creation and redemption. But <clears throat> certainly the main weight is put on the second level. For a miracle, on the other hand, this is not so. The focus is on the act itself. Point D, hence, miracles are not acted parables. But E, there are, however or may be ramifications by analogy. That is, it's the same principle of Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. If Jesus Christ is the same Lord, what can we learn about his Lordship and who he is and what we may expect him to do for us? Now again, a pure continuity situation would say, so if you're demon-possessed today and the name of these demons is Legion, that, you know, you, I mean, you can sort of make it absurd, right? But you can make it a direct parable in terms of pure, uh, sorry, a direct parallel in terms of pure continuity. But the question is, you know, what do we do with analogies between, that we may see between the incidents in Jesus' earthly life and now? All right, then, point F then, that elaboration, as with a case of parables, elaboration in terms of the details having micro-meanings that have a second level of significance, this elaboration, if it exists at all, is a matter of degree. And as with parables, to the degree that this exists, it is difficult to measure the amount of elaboration in interpretation 
because interpretation of the whole and interpretation of the parts of the story are intertwined. Now that's Madeline Boucher's argument that she used with respect to parables, but I'm sort of taking it over with miracles and saying if you accept, for instance, and maybe I should, I'm going to end up getting things out of order if I do this. But the parable of the healing, the parable, the miracle story, as a Freudian slip, the miracle story of the healing of the paralytic, where Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, it becomes fairly obvious to many readers that this invites some kind of reflection on the relationship between Jesus' power to forgive sins and his power to heal this man. Well, then you see, you've already got two levels, right? But maybe it's just that one point. Jesus can forgive sins. But, but the point is, it's already two levels. And now, the question of whether there are details of the story which say something about forgiveness of sins is something that remains open. You'd have to ask that question. And it seems then that in that kind of situation, Madeline Boucher's argument could be applied to say, in effect, you can't just assume a single point theory of interpretation of miracle stories. Neither can you just assume a sort of one-to-one -one point correspondence of all the details the way I started and maybe you think mercifully spared you from going into all the details with the gathering demoniac of, you know, th this means that, right? So in principle, I'm saying it's an open question. That's F. G, details of a miracle cannot merely be dismissed by general fiat, that is a priori, as by saying, well, it's just a detail. That isn't the point. Why not? Because, for one thing, God is sovereign over all of history. In fact, the demoniac, the Gadarene demoniac, did not wear clothes. And he did not wear clothes because, you know, of his own hang-ups. <laughs> but he also did not wear clothes because of God's decree that that would be the way it is. And there may then be significance to that in the way in which it is incorporated in the story. Now you see, I think there's a little bit of tendency to ignore this fact. With parables, again, because they're fictional, you say, well, any detail is there simply because the, you know, the author invented it. With a miracle story, the detail is there because it happened factually. But why did it happen factually? Because you know, of God's sovereignty. So you still get the fact, and we talked about this, right, with the uh, issue of, of do, does history, does interpretation of history add stuff that's not there, or is it already significant? You see, if history is brute fact, as the secularist tends to think of it, then any interpretation is an invention, is an imposition. But if God is sovereign over history, then there can be true interpretations which are in effect drawing out significance which is already there according to the plan of God. So that's always something to take into account. And the second thing to take into account is that the recording of a fact is not the same as its occurrence. The fact is mentioned rather than not mentioned. And that's always significant. So Luke mentions that this fellow wore no clothes. He didn't have to do that. But again now, that opens the thing, just as with parables, of the possibility of color, what I call the colorful details, which is not a good term, right? Because it tends to, I think, in my ear, 
depreciate the significance, but any detail you'll find is going to contribute, you know, enhance or fill out or make more effective the parable, any, uh, any detail you find in there, without necessarily having a distinct symbolic significance. Similarly, with miracle stories, any detail that's actually included, you see, you've got to think like the author a bit and say, what effect does this have on the reader that it's included? Not simply that it happened, but it's included as a, it's mentioned. And then point uh, G, I guess it is, H. There is not necessarily one-to-one -one correspondence of all the details, as, again, we've stressed. Okay. And we'll come back to that point. Uh, we're almost out of time. We'll have to come back to these next week. But uh, point six, persuasive impact of a miracle. Dodd says that a parable has the character of an argument. But we've observed that is not equally true of all the parables, although it is true of some, and some very much true. But a miracle is not an argument in, another, uh, in the same way. It's an argument, I think, most of the time in another way, not by appealing to what is directly known, not by, as Dodd says, appealing to nature or common life. That is, you know, isn't it so that shepherds do this, right? And that's convicting to the Pharisees that they should instinctively do this. See, that's an argument. The miracle is not appealing to nature, what shepherds do, or what seed does in growing, but a revelation of the transcendent authority of God and of, perhaps, then the miracle worker. It argues by calling people to respond to evidence. Evidence, and this gets into the conflict with Burkauer uh, over miracles, evidence that, to be sure, is subject to twisting the Pharisees accused him of casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. But it's evidence that convicts people, makes them more guilty if they neglect what they see uh, before them. And uh, Burkauer may or may not make the point that people are already guilty before, right? Because they've rebelled against God. That's true enough but they give them, become more guilty <laughs> if they don't repent. If the, you know, America's done and you had been done solving more, they would have repented long ago. Um, so it convicts them. Well, we're out of time. We had uh, just begun to uh, discuss the issue of um, the um, persuasive impact of, of miracle stories. Now with, again, I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to follow um, the outline which we had with, from parables, even though it does not apply at every point equally. Uh, and this uh, one, we're going to have to make some adjustments as well. Dodd, remember, says that a parable has the character of an argument. And even that is not true, I think, equally of all parables. But a miracle is uh, not an argument in that way by appealing to what is common, but really a revelation of transcendent authority. It calls people to respond to evidence, um, evidence that is to be sure is subject to being twisted by those who are 
in opposition to it by the religious leaders, in fact, who eventually accused Jesus of being in league with Beelzebul. Uh, but John 15, 22, and this is where we left off, I believe. John 15, 22, Jesus has uh, some interesting reflections on the evidential value of his miracles. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. An absolute statement, clearly to be qualified, I think, in context, not that they were sinlessly and flawlessly perfect, but they would not be guilty in comparison <laughs> to what they are now guilty. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin in the context of John. It's clearly reflecting on his, uh, the sign character of the miracles. But now they have seen these miracles and he has. I wish that they had, paid, uh, had made visible in English the Semea, distinctive character of Johannian way of talking about them. Now they have seen these signs and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Well, the point then is not that there is no guilt beforehand. There is guilt on the part of all in Adam and uh, through general revelation, Romans 1.18, knowing God, there are few to honor him as God. We know those things. But the uh, evidence of miracles, if it does not lead to repentance, increases guilt. So uh, they are an argument, but an argument of a rather different kind than uh, the parables are. Luke 5.14 in the healing of the leper, Jesus tells him to show himself, show, go show yourself to a, a priest. And he says, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. So again, that's a, something of an evidential character. Now, that's a somewhat mysterious statement until you read it in the light of a lot of other things. But I think it's then headed in the same direction as John 15. Now, I did give you my parody of, of Dodd's definition, or did I? A miracle story, if we follow Dodd exactly. Now, this is, uh, yeah, I haven't given this to you. If we follow Dodd exactly with his definition of parable, we come out like this. A miracle story is a metaphor or simile, and I had to add, even with the definition of parable or synecdoche, part for whole, drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness and strangeness, and leading the mind, leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. Now, that's just the definition of parables with miracle stories substituted for parable. How well will that work? It is a metaphor, simile, or synecdoche drawn from nature or common life. Well, we have to alter that. It's more drawn from this uh, manifestation of transcendent power and authority, right? It's not common. <laughs> but I've already raised the question whether miracles signify. And in John, this Semeon issue, more so, more explicitly than in the other Gospels, I think they clearly do signify. Jesus 
has uh, John 6, uh, the um, feeding of the 5,000, and then right on that, there's this long discussion of the discourse of the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Clearly, building on what's just happened, and Jesus actually interacts with the Jews. You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. The problem of, of latching on to physical benefit without seeing the significance of, as a revelation of the character of Christ himself. Are other miracle stories like that? Well, in John they are, and uh, I want to try to um, argue that even though the other Gospels are not as explicit about it as John, that, that the uh, whole context of the kingdom of God and the coming of the kingdom leads one uh, by a more circuitous route maybe to the same kind of conclusion, in which case then we will often have two levels of meaning. That is, here is bread and it's, there is, it's multiplied and feeds people physically, but now Jesus is the bread of life who feeds people spiritually, right? You've already got two levels in that case. And uh, surely if that's the significance uh, of the um, feeding of the 5,000 in John, it's not alien to the significance in the other Gospels, even though, as I've attempted to... Uh, encourage you, we need to take each gospel on its own two feet or four, um, if you think of it as a walking on all fours. Anyway, uh, this definition then suggests miracles are signs, okay? Arresting the hearer by its vividness, surely that's an understatement with respect to miracles. Uh, parables may be arresting just because they're somewhat startling or they have twists or things that happen in them or, um, uh, or they're just vivid. They're vivid stories. But the miracles, by their very unusual and uh, awe-inspiring character, arrest the hearer even more directly. And they are strange. They are extraordinary. And that's one of the things that makes people uh, look and arrest their attention. So even more so than parables, then, uh, those parts of the description fit. Now, what about the last part? Leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. Is that true of miracles? Well, you might think, no. Parables are somewhat mysterious. Miracles are overt. Except that Jesus has to expostulate this, again, I am the bread of life discourse. He has to expostulate with uh, the Jews over the understanding of the miracles and to criticize them for their lack of, uh, of uh, depth in their response to it. And likewise, in John 5, the healing of a man sick on the Sabbath, and it gets into an old discussion of the Sabbath, and, and so on. And, and one of you, which one is it, uh, is going to do John 9, right? And the healing of a man born blind, uh, Damon Glassmoyer. So... There might be some truth of this, even though, again, I think we'd want to reword the thing. The point is that there are some tantalizing analogies between what goes on in miracle stories and what goes on in parables, probably mostly because they are both integrally related to the kingdom of God in its wholeness. There are analogies, but at the same time, different things come into prominence, right? So even though you can lose 
use similar language. We don't want to press uh, the similarities as if the categories were the same. Uh, and here I notice, basically, uh, I've <laughs> anticipated my own notes. Let me read through. Actually, maybe I can help you to, um, and to flesh out the outline here. We're still under general principles in approaching miracle stories. That's B, and under that, six, I believe, was the persuasive impact of miracle, which we began to discuss last um, week. Seven, then, is uh, Dodd's definition playing with that, all right? And under that, A is the idea of metaphor and simile that not only does that correspond to this spiritual level, but you can also actually ask whether it corresponds to what God does through farming and agriculture every day. In other words, it's extraordinary, and yet isn't there a certain marvelousness to uh, the production of food from the soil by ordinary means? Uh, the leper is cleansed. This is just simply another example. But the cleansing is directly by God in the Old Testament. There's no provision unless God heals you uh, for how to be healed. And after you're healed, you go through a ceremony of cleansing. So it becomes a metaphor for divine cleansing. And in that respect, again, corresponds to another level. Uh, uh, point B was this idea of drawn from common life. And uh, even there, though the, the differences are vast, we want to say that miracles are extraordinary and not common. Yet, often they are appropriate in that, for instance, Jesus does not turn stones into bread, but bread into bread. Um, now, even that ought not to be pressed, absolutely, because there's a sense in which God, uh, through the means of, of the growth of plant, does turn stones into bread. <laughs> You know, starting with the minerals and the other constituents, inorganic, then uh, through a long process, uh, you get the plant life. But um, over and over again, the miracles, even in their extraordinariness, also shows some appropriateness. For instance, with the uh, healing of the Gadarene demoniac in Luke, I guess it was Luke 8, uh, there is a fittingness, people have disputed this, but I think there is a fittingness in the fact that the demons go into the pigs, which are an unclean animal, and whose bestiality is clearly analogous to the degraded human nature of the man who was demon-possessed. He really, um, uh, the question is whether he's more than a beast in terms of his behavior. Clearly he is a, a man, but he's lost many of the identifying features normally associated with man being in the image of God. He, he's behaving in many respects like a wild animal. He wears no clothes. He lives out in the open rather than a house. He's, he's animal-like. And uh, so there is an appropriateness to the demons when uh, he's released and restored to his full humanity. The demons go into uh, animals. And then they rush down into the lake, which is analogous to going down into the abyss, going down into destruction and ultimately um, the underworld. So um, even though the, the uh, 
the events are extraordinary, yet there is a kind of harmony uh, or fittingness in some of the features of things. Um, so that's something to think about uh, too. See the arresting of the hearer, we've talked about that. Frame's definition of miracle as arousing awe and wonder is that in a much more superlative fashion. Uh, D, the leaving the mind in doubt. Uh, again, the miracles, I would admit, are more straightforward, and yet they're not what the Pharisees wanted. And the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, give us a sign from heaven, as if he weren't giving them signs from heaven all along. Uh, and there's something perverse about that, undoubtedly, and yet it's obvious that they are frustrated, that they, they, uh, they think of themselves as people who are ready to receive the Messiah when he comes. They're religious people. Um, but they are in doubt as to what this Messiah claimant, if he is a claimant, what is he? Okay, now, capital three, uh, it will be C, interpreting Luke 5, 17 to 26. Um, what do we do with a passage like this one? Now, this is the healing of the paralytic, where the suggestion comes right in the passage of an analogy between forgiveness of sins and the healing, physical healing of the paralyzed man. And the question that I want to raise then is, uh, well, this will be point A, that there's a challenge in the question of how much do we follow this kind of clue into elaborate, constructing more or less elaborate correspondences between uh, physical action of the miracle and a significance, whether spiritually or at least on some other level, um, as to its implications for the work of Christ. And the challenge is that there is an apparent basis for elaboration found in the Gospels themselves, maybe less directly than an interpretation of the parables, but uh, certainly in the Gospel of John, you find uh, the uh, open correspondences between the miracle on the one hand and theological truths that are taught in connection with the miracle. So that's the challenge. B is, I think, over against an extreme elaboration approach that would find theological significance in every detail, my answer would be that there, there is sometimes a lack of one-to-one -one correspondence between the two levels. That is, of, there's not one-to-one -one correspondence in every detail. For instance, right in this passage, 526, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. That happened on the little literal level of the story if they're, they're amazed by the physical healing. But what if the underlying point is Jesus has power to forgive sins? What should the response be to that? Well, it should be not an analogous response, but the identical response. So what you have here, I mean, you, you no longer have two levels at that one point, it seems to me. And that's a little bit of an oddity. Or verse 19, they let the man down through the tiles. What's the spiritual significance of the tiles? Well, you could say generally, it just it shows, you know, this is one of these colorful details, I would think. 
It's there for a reason. It, along with the details of how they went up on the roof and so on, show the commitment of the people who were carrying the paralytic and that they were absolutely determined to get there. They showed faith, right, through these actions. And you might infer, well, you know, that shows we should have faith and, you know, continue to, to uh, uh, seek Christ for forgiveness really believing that he can give it, and so we can elaborate on that. But the point is that go, the going up on the roof and the, through the tiles and everything related to that is significant as a part of the story in that it underlines that element of faith and of uh, persistence. Without then, we're having to say, well, that is some, uh, there is some spiritual meaning to the tiles uh, you know, in terms of a detailed correspondence. So there may be, the point is, there may be lack of a perfect one-to-one -one correspondence, and sometimes there may be more than two levels. Uh, for instance, with this same um, story of healing again, in the new heavens and the new earth, there is a final union of forgiveness of sins and bodily resurrection, bodily restoration, sorry, in the resurrection of the body, both of which rest on Christ's resurrection. So we can't isolate this particular healing. It's not only then, as it were, this man is physically healed, we are spiritually healed, but then we are physically healed in the resurrection of the body, and Christ uh, being uh, vindicated from death and from judgment in his resurrection is being pointed to as the ultimate foundation for both the physical deliverance of this man and our ultimate physical and spiritual deliverance. Well, now I've got in play, you know, four or five different things, right? All of which are related to this story. It's not just a matter of telling it then as, an, as a, what should I say, a church allegory or gospel allegory. So now you are spiritually paralyzed by sin and, and, and now you have to ask Christ to forgive you. Well, you want to say you ask Christ to forgive you on the basis of his resurrection and his death, right? Which is bringing in something um, that is in, a, in the end, I think, on another level. That is, it's the foundation for both physical and spiritual deliverance. Okay, the point then is that I think as we reflect about, methodologically reflect about how we approach a, para, a miracle story like this, then um, it steers us away from uh, thinking that we have to find a spiritual significance for every detail or that it's a, a merely a one-to-one -one map between uh, the physical story and the spiritual significance. Let me do now um, an exploration is still under point C, capital C, of ramified meanings. Can we do that analogous to the way we did it with uh, parables? So if you want to keep your outline in order, and I admit I haven't done that very well, uh, well, point, this is all under point, capital C, point one, was the challenge of whether we resort to extreme elaboration. Point two, there's a lack of pure one-to-one -one correspondence. And point three, which I haven't mentioned, as with parables, so here, 
it is hard accurately to measure the degree of elaborateness in interpretation for more or less the same way, uh, reason, namely that the smaller meanings of the pieces contribute to an overall meaning, right? So the way Boucher said with parables, the micro meanings make up one macro meaning. So it's okay to say there is one main point, but that, that point is reached through the details of the story. Point four, then, is the exploration of, of uh, ramified meanings. Now, with Jesus' parables, you remember we had these circles, starting with the innermost one being the parable itself, one parable, and then the next one out being a parable about parables in general, right? And then Jesus' earthly ministry more broadly. And then the death and resurrection as the climax of that ministry. And then the spread of the gospel in Acts and in this age. And then the largest circle being uh, uh, God's creational and recreational activity in a unity, right? Recreational activity. So we get a cosmic context. Now, can we do the same thing with a parable? Well, let's, uh, with a miracle, sorry. Uh, I keep slipping back. Uh, with the miracle story, let's take this same story of the healing of the paralytic and ask what would it look like if we follow through that same diagram, can we, will it work? Okay, so at the innermost region, what we have is uh, this one miracle story as about itself. Now, that does not work as well, because a parable, a parable, it, because it's verbal primarily, then the question is, what is it talking about, right? And it can be talking about itself. But a miracle is what it is non-verbally, all right? So I'm going to leave that one. Well, I guess, no, I guess what we want to say is that the innermost one is simply we have a man who is healed, right? We have the, the, the literal story of healing. That isn't quite similar to this self-referential business with parables. But uh, then, more broadly, we have, what would we have here? Not a parable about parables, but a miracle story. It would be a miracle story illumining The, the miraculous works general, gen, gen, generally, miraculous works, all right? Does this do it? I think it does because of the way in which it, it opens the prospect of saying, with other miracles, I'm also showing my authority, and therefore my authority, which involves forgiveness of sins, which involves teaching authority and that the miracles then are more generally intended to be signs pointing behind themselves, beyond themselves. Now what about Jesus' earthly ministry? Jesus' ministry is a ministry of forgiveness and bodily healing, right? 
And you might say healing comprehensively, ultimately, in such a way as to encompass both of these. And in the cross and the resurrection, the resurrection, of course, is the bodily healing of the humanity in, in its representative form, but it's also deliverance from, from sin. It is comprehensive deliverance. So that works. And then the broadest level of creation and recreation, well, that's where we observe, basically, that the new heavens and the new earth encompass both bodily healing and spiritual healing, including forgiveness and sanctification and so on. Right? So ultimately, God's solution is a redemption which redeems the cosmos of the, from the effects of the fall. Yeah. Did I? Oh, yeah, I did. Sorry, I'm glad you uh, said that because right in here we have the gospel, right? Going out to the ends of the earth. We are proclaimers of forgiveness of sins, but are we also those who, like the apostles, work miraculous healings of Dorcas being raised to life or... Uh, the man at Lystra who, you know, leaps up and walks. Well, most of us might feel reluctant to put ourselves in those shoes. But, but I think the, um, the reform missiological tradition has in fact seen that the gospel is to be presented holistically, in effect, as God is coming to meet the, the disruptions and, and uh, wounds and and needs of humanity comprehensively. So the missiologists will talk about the fact that it's not wrong, for instance, to have a medical missionary alongside of a church planting operation. And uh, in, you know, in some cultures, even, your, uh, your humanitarian, if you want to call it that, but it's really God-centered <laughs> mercy work, uh, takes a big role because the government may restrict uh, missions work of other kinds, but they're happy to have uh, people who are helping them materially. Now, the danger always is the kind of thing of, of you're seeking me just because you ate your fill of the loaves. And there was, in missiological literature, a thing called rice Christians. Have you ever heard that? It meant people who became Christians because they got better fed because of, of uh, material uh, resources associated with the mission. And so the problem is, of course, people get become Christians, quote-unquote, for the wrong reasons. So there's always the danger that the mis ministry to physical needs takes on a momentum of its own that controls everything else. But, uh, you know, when it's done right, uh, it can be very effective. And Samaritan's Purse, you may have heard of, you know, Franklin Graham, son of Billy Graham, is running this whole ministry that is going out and, uh, and basically presenting the message of the gospel in the context of charitable works, uh, often uh, in, in parts of the world where there's intense suffering, you know, where there are crises of, of civil wars and famines and things. So... So the point is that even in this age, 
there is to be a ministry of mercy along with a ministry, verbal ministry of proclaiming the gospel. It had here, but you mean why isn't any longer, larger? Because, it, well, it should be, in effect, it should fill the, <laughs> I'm glad you, you uh, challenged that because it really, it should, it undergirds everything else, doesn't it? It's not just a uh, uh, incident, an incident, alongside of the, all the incidents of Jesus' work. And it's presupposed, in a sense, uh, as the culmination, it's presupposed and looked forward to by the earlier things. So I can't, if you can think of a good way to represent that diagrammatically, I'd be grateful to you, because it really doesn't, the diagram doesn't adequately show how it's a foundation for everything else. It's, okay. And once again, you have a unity which you achieve at this largest level between the spiritual and the, and the physical meaning. It's God who renews the creation at this level. It's, of course, Christ who works the miracle here. And again, underlying that, although somewhat more obviously than in the case of parables, is the uh, background assumption of Christ's deity. Okay, well, the healing, I've got a diagram with the healing of the leper, the preceding incident. And once again, you might uh, do the same thing. I'm, I don't think I'll even go through all the details of it. But because it's an easy, comparatively easy thing with leprosy, I think because it's fairly plain from the Old Testament that it signifies cleansing from sin, that you get this theme of purification, spiritual purification, purification into the presence of God, but then purification of the cosmos, which would touch on the physical side as well. Um, yeah, this is relevant, I suppose, because you can understand that there are two extremes. There are people who want to have a, a health and prosperity gospel now and want to have everything now and feel if you're not healed, it must be something the matter with your faith or your relationship to God uh, in order for you not to be healed now. To which my answer is that there is comprehensive healing when we are raised, when, our, when we receive a resurrection body. And if you settle for anything less than that, you're impoverished. <laughs> so if that's the goal, then clearly even the health and prosperity people don't have it yet. <laughs> And if they don't have it yet, then there is still more to come. And then the question is, may God delay some of those blessings that are genuinely promised to us in Christ? And that's up to him. So the, the, I see it then as a, a sort of jumping the gun uh, when people, in effect, they end up insisting on telling on God what his, the timetable must be <laughs> for when the physical blessings come. On the other hand, I think there's, there's the other extreme is reacting over to the other side and saying, well, Jesus did miracles and the apostles did miracles, but it's all about the preaching of the gospel. It's all about the, the forgiveness of sins. Well, it is all about that, but it's about that precisely because the forgiveness of sins and the reversal of the effects of the fall is at the heart of what redemption is about. But that reversal, though it must start at the core, doesn't stop before it's taken care of all the effects, including those physical effects 
that um, encompass sickness and death. So that we, um, I think people within a reform circles can be a little too shy of saying, well, you know, we ought to ask God for uh, a bodily healing as well as um, spiritual healing, but with the understanding that it's up to him when and how he's going to give it. We can come to him as a, as a wise father who cares for us and cares for our bodies as well. And part of the message of this, I want to, what I want to do is, is to say the message of those miracles is not simply to point beyond themselves to the spiritual, right? But the body is important to God too. And we know that by the, the, the uh, culmination in the new heavens and the new earth. So the, uh, the physical, it isn't as if Jesus is there and he says, well, I don't really care about whether uh, the paralytic is healed, but I need to do this to show about, you know, to teach people forgiveness of sins. You see, he does care about forgiveness of sins and he does care about teaching people, but he also cares about physical healing. So that's something I think to help um, set the whole issue of the relationship of um, bodily healing to the present age in a context. Okay, having said that, let's talk, capital D, about guideline maxims for interpretation. Now, again, we're going to use the same maxims, but also think to ourselves, when is it that we need to change some of the maxims in a decisive way in order to take account of the differences that we're encountering with miracle stories. So here we go. Uh, the maxims under D, one is a whole area uh, of contextual interpretation, and then there are uh, five subpoints under that. A, that our interpretation of a particular miracle story should be consistent with the teachings of Jesus and with the significance that we found in other miracles that he's done. And in fact, quite a few of the miracles are explicitly connected with sayings of Jesus. Look, for instance, at the miracle of the miraculous catch of fish in Luke 5, 1 to 11, verse 10, Jesus says, don't be afraid, from now on you will catch men. Well, see, clearly that's a real big hint <laughs> uh, as to assign kind of significance to that. Luke 5, 17, 26, the healing paralytical, we've already seen that with uh, verse 24, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Luke 6, 9, Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Well, he's partly, it's an argument challenging their presuppositions, but to save life or destroy it is something of a pregnant meaning, isn't it? Right? Of saying, well, you know, I'm saving this life by physically healing, but the whole language of salvation is bigger than that. And earlier, verse 5, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, that's not in connection of a miracle, but it is right preceding this miracle on the Sabbath. So those are just examples of the kind of thing you come up with. All right. So that's consistency with other teachings of Jesus and with the significance of other miracles. B, our interpretation of a particular miracle story should be consistent 
with Jesus' use of miracles elsewhere. Sorry, I'm just making this a separate one. I thought I was combining it. Right, it should be consistent with the teaching of Jesus, but consistent also, I'm making this a separate point, with miracles, use Jesus' use of miracles elsewhere. Miracles are a sign of the coming of the kingdom. Luke 11:20. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come on you, has come to you. And they are often signs of reversal. Luke 7:22. And Luke, this is a theme, by the way. Luke 7:22. So he replied to the messengers, "Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive the sight, the lame walk." Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Now, all those are positive things. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me is some hint that there wouldn't be, there might be a negative side. It's a reversal of status, right? And Luke 1 introduces that in Mary's Magnificat. Verse 51, Luke 1, 51, he has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in, the in, in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich empty away. Uh, Luke 7, 22 is particularly important because it picks up on uh, the background in Isaiah 61, 1. We've already looked at of the, the messenger of good tidings there. Well, good news preached to the poor. What's that from? Isaiah 61.1, where he's also proclaiming release to the captives and so on. And Isaiah 35.5, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer. And so on. Okay. So, consistency with Jesus' miracles elsewhere. C, consistency with the meaning that could be arrived at by... A, Jesus' observers, and B, Luke's audience. And once again, there is the possibility, as we saw with parables, of an expansion of significance in the light of the completion of Christ's work, right? That you can see more after you've seen the end of the story. John 13, verse 7. So he said to the man, no, that's Luke, sorry. John 13. Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing. Now, this is not a miracle, admittedly, but it's a kind of symbolic action. It's the washing of the feet of the disciples. You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Very specific statement of what doubtless is true in many other cases. Okay, D, redemptive historical perspectives. Uh, what did we say in the parable? We said that the context for Jesus' parables over and over again was the context of his own ministry particularly and of the crisis of the coming of the kingdom of God at that time and uh, in that location. Miracles are a part of that too as well, aren't they? But uh, they are, they function as redemptive historical markers of this period in several particular ways. First, as displays of the power of God and therefore also of the presence of God and of the salvation of God, which is dawning. Luke 8, 25. 
where is your faith? In fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? He commands even the wind and the water and they obey him. It's a very remarkable display of power that the disciples themselves recognize. So it's, a, it's signs of the power of God and also some, at least, as a prelude to Christ's death and resurrection, Luke 13, 32 to 34. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Oh, I need 32. He replied, go tell that fox, Herod, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. So he's looking forward to his own death. And the miracles are miracles then of a prophet in that respect. Next, the miracles, as I've hinted already, are a prelude to final cosmic healing. If they are in connection with the kingdom of God, which is the dawning of that final act of salvation, then cosmic healing is a part of that, of the total plan of God. The great miracle, it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, the great miracle is the resurrection of Christ. And the resurrection is cosmic healing in the form of the representative head, right? It's the paradigm case, uh, which is the pattern that we are to follow, of course, in our resurrection, but also the cosmos more broadly. So that's a redemptive historical perspective. And E is the one, one of you, was it you, Matt, uh, added this harmony with the literary context of the gospel. Okay. Well, we have time before our break maybe to do number two, typical strategies in miracle stories. Well, this you know, I think you'll see is a little bit different. A, in a parable, the principal action, actor in a parable often represents God. You know, it's the master of the house or landowner or whatever. What do we say about a miracle story? The principal actor in a miracle story, who is the principal actor? It's Jesus himself. So this is much more direct, you see. And Jesus is more directly in the center. Jesus is the teller of the parables, but here he's the actual actor. And he, quote, represents God, which is a weak word for it, right? In light of later knowledge, we know he is God. But... Again, we have to respect the fact that during Jesus' earthly life, that was not immediately visible. It was only a gradually dawning factor. But he represented God as a prophet represents God, and then people gradually saw that it was more than a prophet. So that would be certainly an element to look at, although it's so obvious one hardly needs to say it. Watch what Jesus does and the relationship between Jesus' actions and God's actions. That is, God as a Jew would have thought of it, you see, not immediately recognizing uh, the later um, doctrinal truths. B, oh, uh, I didn't mention it, but uh, under 
sea of contextual interpretation, consistently see where the meaning could be arrived at by Jesus' observers and Luke's hearers. Again, that's a sort of boundary for excessive allegory, allegorizing, right? To say that um, we respect the guidelines of an original audience. But now, back to uh, this will be point B under typical strategies of miracle. Do our miracle stories sometimes self-referential? Well, the effect of a self-referential parable is to create a mystery which forces you to look at the utterer of the parable as the one who holds the key to the mystery. Now, the analog with a miracle story would be to look at the miracle worker. But that's so obvious that I think, again, it, it isn't. A miracle sort of refers to itself because it's stupendous, but only in that elementary sense. And because it's stupendous, it also draws attention to the miracle worker. And indeed, the apostles had trouble with this, you know, and said it's not by our own power and piety that we did this. They had to explicitly uh, turn the attention away from themselves. So I think the operation of this thing is a little bit different. Right, because a miracle almost automatically draws attention to the one who works it. All right, and point C then concerns colorful details versus the expectation that every detail will have a distinct symbolic meaning. Uh, unlike the uh, theory of perfect elaboration of every detail. There are details in miracle stories, I would claim, that need not have a distinct symbolic meaning by themselves. Not every element in the story needs to correspond to some symbolic meaning. The tiles uh, in the story of the paralytic being one example of that. Uh, but the details still contribute to the story in terms of its overall impact. They just contribute in another way. And finally, and we'll take our break after this. D, the two evidence rule. Will it work? Well, it's, yeah, the two evidence rule will essentially read the same way as before. Namely, that if you postulate that some particular item, usually a detail in a miracle story, has a distinct symbolic significance, then you should have two evidences coming from two different directions that point in the same direction towards that symbolic meaning that you claim is there. Typically, one such evidence being what I call the constructual, ev constructional evidence, that is that the, the um, sim symbolic meaning fits into the symbolic story in a way analogous to, this, to the literal detail fitting into the literal story. Uh, so you can follow that out. Uh, is the two evidence rule appropriate in this case well, that, that needs some reflection, and maybe I haven't reflected enough on that. I think it's good to have something like that in the background as a guideline, but given the number of distinct things that we have seen about miracle stories as over against parables, that they operate in a little different way, that raises the question whether the details are to be handled the same way. Um, if anything, there probably should be a little more caution with miracle stories for the reasons we've already given, that a, that a parable puts all the weight on the second level of meaning. 
right? And a miracle needn't do that. And so the parable, by its nature, pushes you harder in the direction of looking for symbolic significance. So certainly we need uh, some kind of advice that's going to uh, give us some um, restraint on that. Uh, so anyway, I'm just, I'm in effect throwing that out as a possibility to be contemplated. But again, it's no better than um, a reflection after the fact on what I would suppose uh, typical first century interpreters would intuitively do. Intended effects, point three is intended effects on the audience. And again, I'm still following through the uh, suggested maxims for parables to see how well they work. A under this was inviting judgment. Um, again, I don't think that works quite the same way with miracles. With parables, it's often the kind of Nathan-type parable where the person gets committed to a case out there and then comes later to see that it applies to himself. Miracles invite judgment in the sense that they are signs that test the observer's reactions and call on them to judge for themselves, but in some cases more than others. Luke 11:19 is a good example, though I must admit things are not always this explicit. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. So in effect, judge for yourselves, you see, what you would do in a parallel case, and therefore what you really should be doing in this case. And especially the whole section in Mark chapter 6, verse 30 to 9, 1, I think that's a section where there is a certain amount of focus on faith and unbelief. It starts with the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water. Look at verse 6. Chapter 6, verse 52, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. All right, and then um, there's a discussion of ceremonial cleansing, and the Pharisees don't understand, uh, are resistive to that. And uh, then the healing of a deaf and mute man, chapter 7, verse 31, which is uh, sort of, uh, you can take as an allegory of faith and unbelief. And the feeding of the 4,000 follows that. And then uh, verse uh, eight, chapter 8, verse 21, do you still not understand? So there's an issue of this challenge of, do you understand the significance of the miracles? And then uh, Jesus' confession or, or, or G, uh, Peter's prediction, sorry, Jesus predicting his death and Jesus and Peter resisting it and Jesus having to say, get behind me, Satan. That's verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 33. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Do you understand, in other words? Still is the issue. So, uh, even though it comes out in a different way, the miracles certainly are miracles that call for understanding. Uh, point B, do uh, parables are sometimes provoking. Are miracles provoking? I think some of them are. And so again, it's something, again, not equally all of them, 
but it's something to watch for in miracles. Uh, some miracles are done on the Sabbath. And after a while, one begins to suspect almost that Jesus takes a special kind of delight <laughs> in doing these miracles on the Sabbath because it provokes the opposition. That there's something about that. And, you know, rather than saying, well, you know, I've already made my point and go on, it just comes up again and again. Uh, and it is provoking. John 5 is an extended discussion of that. that you know, it's this healing of the, the man who's been ill for 38 years, and it takes place on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees uh, really get uh, disturbed and, and uh, accusatory over it. So you all, but more broadly than that, not only are some, some of the miracles, the miracles done on the Sabbath are provoking, but look for odd elements in miracle stories that challenge an ordinary understanding. The touching of the leper, for instance, which is the, so we mentioned that as a so breaking of social custom of the time. Or the man who's healed gradually, you know, Jesus touches his eyes and his ears and then he begins to see and he sees men but they're like trees walking around. Well, that's actually in this section in Mark and it's it's hard for me to believe that that is not related to the whole problem of the disciples as they sort of are beginning to grasp and sort of not grasping. They're in a kind of no man's land of seeing and not seeing, spiritually speaking. Okay. As C, pregnant depth. Do we see the full significance of a miracle right away? Or did Jesus' initial audience see it right away? And I would claim we don't see the full significance if we view it independently of the evangelist's interpretations. Uh, Mark 5, 21 to 43 is the uh, healing of Jairus' daughter. But Mark, I won't go into the details, but I think Mark sets this up as a climactic miracle. It certainly is somewhat climactic just because it's a resurrection miracle. It's uh, uh, more spectacular. But by this use of the um, historical present tense in narrative again and again, and then finally at the climax shifting to Eris, he puts more focus on that climax. It looks to me that this uh, miracle is a sort of climax at least to the early part of the development of the Gospel of Mark, and as such points forward to Jesus' death and resurrection later on. If it is a prelude to Jesus' death and resurrection, then the full significance of it is seen only in the light of that, and more broadly, the full significance of any act of God in the end is seen only in the light of all redemptive history, because it, there's a unified plan of God. So I think uh, that's so, and maybe it's even easier to see in the case of miracle stories than in parables in some respects that we see what they mean in the light of where they're headed uh, with the great miracle of Christ's resurrection. All right, uh, D. Do miracles discriminate different parts of the audience? Well, again, this might be somewhat different from parables in that I don't see this as such a prominent feature because parables appeal primarily to the understanding. The focus is on whether you can understand. But nevertheless, 
with miracles, even though it's somewhat less prominent, I do think this kind of thing goes on. For instance, let's take a number of cases. Mark 8, 11. The Pharisees came to begin to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. There are people who don't get miracles worked before them. And you could cite in that respect, uh, Mark 6, where Jesus comes to Nazareth, uh, right? And then he doesn't do, it even says he could not do any miracles there, verse 5 except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. They didn't see miracles because they lacked faith. Luke 16, 31. The conclusion of the story of the rich man Lazarus. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So the effect of miracles. Some people see more miracles than others and it is related to faith or lack thereof. But even if they did were to see them, the differences would be there. John 6, 60 to 71. And we won't read the whole passage, I don't think. Uh, it's a hard saying in verse 60 and then uh, Jesus discusses their reaction. Verse 64, Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Now this, uh, this is in the context of the feeding of the 5,000, you see, as well as the Jesus' discourses. So it's a reaction to both, right? You could say it's a reaction to the discourses and therefore appropriate for talking about parables. But it's also a reaction to the uh, miracle. And then, of course, uh, some of the disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. Verse 66, will the twelve also leave? And Simon Peter said, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So he's going to stay with Jesus, consequently see more miracles, right? But because he has faith, then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. So, and of course he meant Judas. Uh, John 9, I won't go into in a good deal of de detail because we're going to have one of our class presentations on that. But uh, there is again an issue of faith and unbelief in response to that miracle. Okay, uh, so we've got maxims, all of which are somewhat relevant, but we've often got to adjust them, I think, when we apply them to miracle stories. Yeah. Number four, the kernel husk fallacy. Well, this is going to go the same way. Don't throw away the actual healing once you've got the spiritual meaning, <laughs> right? Well, maybe on one level people are not inclined to do this because particularly in a skeptical age like our own, at least if we're talking about the United States and the West, um, the, the, the sheer uh, wonder of miracles is something that uh, people instinctively retain. But I think there's still the temptation for those, once you're inside the Christian faith and you accept that the thing really happened, to take it simply as a demonstration 
uh, that Jesus is God and that his claims are true, and then to, um, to move on, in effect, in one way or another, rather than seeing there is this bodily healing aspect that is integral to Jesus' ministry. He didn't just preach forgiveness, but he healed people, and that that is uh, a prelude to cosmic healing. So we don't eliminate the physical side of it in our interpretation. Okay. Um, and now what I've got, Roman numeral 5, is some examples, if there were time, although one of them is John, no, John 11, we might come back to, uh, that are, uh, could be explored more uh, thoroughly. But I want to make sure, I may come back to that, although I doubt whether it's going to... What I would like to talk about is Roman numeral 6, archetypal plot structure, and that... Now I'm thinking about how to... Uh, introduce this because this originated out of uh, reflections that were being done out in the literary circles about plot. And the danger of it is that it becomes so general that it's no use to anybody. But I think uh, I'm going to try to persuade you that maybe it is of use. <laughs> What happened, if I may give you a bit of a historical introduction, was that Vladimir Propp, about 1934, and I don't have the notes here to tell you exactly about this. It was Vladimir, E-L-A, Demir, Propp. About 1934, wrote a book called The Structure of the R Russian Folk Tale. And he had taken a corpus of, of essentially folk tales like Cinderella and, and the Grimm stories. It wasn't those particular ones, but it was out of Russia. He'd taken a corpus and he analyzed it and he decided there was a consistent plot structure to every one of them. And he developed categories, basically, so that you could see this consistent plot structure through the, all the variations of the different stories. Then some other people, uh, Algirdas Grima, was a Frenchman, in about 1966 wrote a book on structural analysis of stories, but this time not Russian folk stories, but all stories everywhere, supposedly. And he generalized Prop. He knew about Prop, but whereas Prop had just taken this one corpus, Krima uh, was trying to make it general. Well, I looked at this stuff, and the, uh, it was being used to some extent in biblical studies for a while under the label structuralism. I looked at it and felt that it was a vast simplification and kind of reductionistic. In other words, you only see what you're training yourself to see. But on the other hand, it was getting at something that there were repeated patterns in stories. And so I looked at this stuff and I adapted it for my own 
uh, purposes and came out with this handout that you've got. 